0: Hey, beautiful soul. This is the Menopause Coach Podcast with me, your host, Adele Johnston. I'm helping you create a vibrant life of joy and happiness without your menopause stealing your personal power and sass. Together, we're making menopause mainstream.
1: We have time and time again said to women, this is normal don't worry, this has happened. And when something is defined as normal, we don't research it. And when something is defined as again, that this pain is normal, we don't offer the adequate relief for it.
0: Welcome back to the menopause coach podcast where today I'm joined by a very exciting guest and I'm truly honored to be getting some of her life currency today to talk menopause care with. Dr. Nagat Arif is a GP specialising in women's health and family planning with over 16 years of experience in the NHS and the private practice sector. She is a medical educator and also has worked to raise awareness on menopause and women's health care in black and Asian women presented her clinical work at menopause in the workplace parliamentary committee hearing which is absolutely amazing and many of you will have listened to or seen Dr. Nagat on UK morning TV such as BBC Breakfast and ITV's This Morning as she is the resident doctor which is really awesome. So Dr. Nagat is also a writer and launches her own book called The Knowledge, Your Guide to Female Health from Menstruation to the Menopause which which we have inside the show notes for you if you want to go ahead and grab your copy because excitedly it has launched today. So you can go ahead on the 3rd of August and get your book. The book is bringing women's health to the forefront, really designed to help everyone to understand the key stages of women's lives. Okay, uh, uh, tackling things like endometriosis, going into details on the menstrual cycle, on menopause, of course, and also on other aspects of women's healthcare such as polycystic ovary syndrome (PCOS), which is aimed really at everyone, so that all genders, all ages, all communities can become a bit more. Knowledgeable on women's health. So, enjoy the episode. We dive inside some really brilliant topics of conversation. So, without further ado, I'm going to welcome Dr. Nagat to the Menopause Coach Podcast. Dr. Nagat, welcome to the Menopause Coach Podcast. It is an absolute honour to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for saying yes and gifting us your life currency. It's very, very appreciated and respected. Thank
1: you so much, Adele, for having me. In fact, when you reached out to me about a year ago and you said, would you come on my podcast? I don't think I even took a second to think about it. I was like, yes, Have me on your podcast, but wait until my book comes out (laughs) and then we can definitely have a catch up. And then since then, I obviously Instagram stalk you. And find out that, you know, the incredible work that you're doing. So, honestly, it's a real pleasure to give you a bit of my life currency today.
0: I did not even know that you were Instagram stalking me. That makes me feel very kind of like, wow, amazing. Okay, so you are this amazing, like, life energy and this kind of beacon of light that so many of us women are kind of looking into right now for the beautiful work that you do. But also, I would go as far to say a very difficult space that you are really advocating into just now. But before we go into this and we really get diving into the the kind of nitty gritty of where you are and what you're doing, I would love for an invitation from you to share a little bit about where you came from in this journey. So where did this lead to from you becoming a GP then into this amazing advocate role within women's health and minority communities. So I have to go back to
1: my journey in Pakistan because I'm not actually born in England. Um, I live in England now in Chesham in a really lovely, gorgeous Chiltern village. But I grew up in Pakistan. I was born in the Punjab area, so just outside the hall known as Bawalpur, in a tiny little village. And the village doesn't even have a name. It just has numbers because when the British came along, they just divvied up all the villages and took all the names away and started giving it numbers along the river. I'm Tati Fateh, which is basically village number 35. When I was born, I was the first daughter. My parents got married. I loved going to school. And I remember my grandmother, the closest school was about two mile walk. Um, but my grandmother, was vehemently against that and now I'm older I can understand why she was really scared I would get uh, kidnapped or abducted or sold off or trafficked which were unfortunately realities of living in a rural village in Pakistan. My father is a priest and he had moved to the UK so I was about 10 months old and he had ended up getting a job in Cheshire where we live now and he thought, it's a temporary job. I'll go there. I'll lead the Muslim community as their priest. And once my internship is over, I'll come back. That didn't happen. Uh, along came my two other brothers. And so gradually, my father would obviously come back to Pakistan. And to me, he was this figure that I didn't really know. He's quite a mythical figure. I just knew that I had my mum. So I learned how to pick cotton, run through mango fields, learnt how to swim in canals and nearly drowned in one of the canals because my foot got stuck in stilted mud and that was literally my life until I was nine years old and my uncle, my father's brother, said the gat's getting older, she's nearly nine years old and she doesn't go to school and has no education. Uh, Your children would be far better going to England because they're going to get some form of education and that would be better for them because she's actually very bright and I was just so hungry to learn constantly. Fast forward, we came to England. My father had said to my mother, don't worry, we're going to the UK. It's a beautiful green country and it's wonderful. We came in April and I remember wearing a summer dress with some flip-flops. And the first thing that hit all of us was the cold weather and it just rained nonstop throughout April. My mother was livid and she couldn't really adapt to the weather. But I was so happy. I suddenly had this freedom. I could learn a new language. I was sent to school and the education was for free. I was like, oh my goodness, there's no one berating me or stopping me from going to school. And I'm not seen as just a girl who can't get an education, because unfortunately, my growth and growing up from a very young age, I was always seen as a second class citizen to all the men or my cousins who were boys in our family unit. And I learned English. And so being the first person to learn English, I began translating. I grew up in the mosque with the women. So these are my women. They nurtured me. They grew up with me. They fed me. They taught me the ways of the world in England. I started to find my Western feet, as I say, and I realized that having bilingual, being able to speak two languages, I could become the translator. So not only did I start translating things from periods, fibroids, menopause, which I didn't realize I, I was talking about menopause, but miscarriages, fertility issues to the white GP in my surgery for my women, I started to get an education and I started looking at the GP and thinking, oh my God, she's so cool. She has this amazing role and she helps fix people. She fixed me when I was poorly. And fast forward, when I'm like 27 years old, I'm now a doctor myself. I went to medical school, uh, got my degree, learned through uh, the, the normal strategy of how you end up learning education. And I'm 27 years old and the same stuff that nine-year-old Nagat was translating is still the case. I'm still talking about the fact that menopause is little known about. I'm still talking about the fact that, you know, primary ovarian insufficiency is a massive taboo because your fertility is affected. Because we live in a culture where arranged marriages still happen, then uh, if you find out that the woman has primary ovarian insufficiency, well, that's right for divorce. Because there's very little understanding the fact that there are so many other options out there. I'm still hearing the fact that the women in my community are saying that I go to the doctor and I'm not listened to. I get antidepressants, or my pain isn't taken seriously enough, and I'm told, "Well, do you know what? Periods are just part of being a woman. Get on with it." And I just found that I needed to change. So when I started doing general practice, my studies, I had a, an amazing GP. My trainer did women's health. I was very much, I, I don't want to do women's health. I just want to do a gastroenterologist. Do become a consultant. But actually, women come to women, right? And you know that, Adele, you probably have more of a woman uh, base of, of, of individuals that contact you, and particularly women then who I could speak in my own language to. And so I became more interested in that. And then it came to the point where I found that the Million Women Study had come around and these women who were on HRT, I was prizing their prescription away from them. So come 2005, I was saying to these women, I'm so sorry, I can't give you HRT. And I felt awful because six months to a year later, these same women would come back on their knees going, I need hormone replacement therapy back. So I connected with Louise before Louise is who Louise is now. (laughs) And me and Dr. Newson, Louise Newsom went on a learning journey together. And I said to her, But actually, I need to speak about my women because the conversation is still very much wrapped up in a Western conversation. So I would go back to the women in my community. I'd become a doctor and I worked locally, went to London, came back to Chesham. And I said to the women in the mosque one day, because they were describing these symptoms of feeling hot, feeling irritable, getting palpitations, you know, getting headaches, uh, brain fog uh, was affecting them. Their periods were erratic. So they couldn't pray when they wanted to pray or Ramadan was coming around and they're worried about how to manage their periods because they hadn't had one for four months. And, you know, God forbid it start, they start bleeding in Ramadan because if you're bleeding, then you're exempt from fasting. And I said to the women, I think you're describing symptoms of menopause. And they all laughed at me and they went, no, 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 we don't get menopause. Only white women get menopause. And I was horrified. I I just thought, hang on, what? This is what happens when you exempt a whole group of women from data and research and you have no one that looks like them telling them that this is something that happens and exists, that they think that it translates to them. We would never think about that, say, for a heart attack or heart disease. We'd never say, oh, only white women get heart disease. We just wouldn't do that. But unfortunately, when it comes to women's health, because it's so little known or so little understood, so under-researched in Black and Asian communities, it doesn't translate well. But that means that the consequences of not getting on top of things like understanding osteoporosis, which I know you've done so much work around as well, means that these women are then left in the system in the NHS. So the pandemic hit and I decided, right, I'm going to use the one tool that I have which is I'm having the same conversation with these women and TikTok was on the rise at the time. And my sister said to me, oh my goodness, why are you going on TikTok? No one's going to want to know about vaginal dryness on TikTok. Everyone's doing silly little dances and it's 17-year-olds showing their midriff and you have no midriff to show. (laughs) And so I thought, do you know what? Actually, I'm dyslexic and I can speak for a minute into a camera And jabber away, bang some subtitles on, put a good trending sound, do some in Punjabi or Urdu because I'm obviously bilingual, and I'll just see what happens. Lo and behold, I got like not just hundreds and thousands, millions of hits. Just, I mean, TikTok is still my biggest platform, but millions of hits of women going, Oh my goodness, these symptoms that you're describing is me. Um, But what happened was really significantly, Adele, with me, was the fact that my content was being downloaded and um, being sent in the family WhatsApp group. So I would say that I'm not actually TikTok or Instagram famous. I'm more known for the WhatsApp group because what happened was 15, 16 year olds would see a Muslim woman wearing a hijab, talking in Punjabi or English, and they would say, oh, my goodness, I can recognize this in my grandma, like vaginal atrophy and recurrent neural tract infections. Or I recognize the fact that aches and pains is something my mum complains of all the time. And they would download my video and it will go into the family WhatsApp group. And the family WhatsApp is across the whole globe now. come out of lockdown and I'm walking around Sainsbury's and this woman, just Pakistani woman, in shalwar kameez, follows me around. And I sort of look at her a couple of times and I thought, I'm gonna ignore her because it's probably a patient that I forgot to do something on or you know she wants to ask she just recognizes another hijabi and wants to follow me around because there is that thing you know when you see someone that looks like you in a very white area and we stop in the aisle where there's lots of cottage cheese so I pick one up and I look at her I think is she going to tell me about vaginal discharge now like usually that's what happens she got so excited and she said dr Nagat, dr Nagat, um is that you and i said hello she goes oh my goodness i can't believe i'm meeting you and you're living in the same you're you're in sainsbury's you're like really we love you you adore your content and my whole family in canada america new zealand pakistan have all seen your video about menopause and i think that for me was like oh that's amazing because there is somebody who's actually watching the content that I make and edit myself. And that's practically literally my journey in a nutshell.
0: Oh my goodness. I mean, the whole way through that, if, if the listeners of this could see me smiling, nodding, like all the emotions, so much, right? So much through all of that, not just from the fact that When you were a child growing up in that environment, which you found fun, obviously we're we're completely oblivious to risks and all the things when we're we're young. And then coming into the UK, very rainy, (laughs) very rainy April, and learning a new language. Yeah, that's, that's a big step for anyone. I mean, this is nothing compared to you. I am not bilingual.
1: I grew up really quickly and now as a mother to three boys, and my oldest is 12, I just think I don't think I could have done that. But I think that's a typical migrant story because as the eldest, you just suddenly want to almost protect your parents and look after them as well. But for me, I never saw it as a burden. It was just freedom. Suddenly, I'm not just a girl. I am seen as an equal and I get something for free, something tangible for free. And education was my ticket out of so many things of, I think, the patriarchy and the misogyny that we we face as women. But also, is my ticket out of um, household chores. And nobody wants to do household chores. Oh,
0: gosh, no. I've got two of them up the <laughs> stairs right now on their um, game consoles, not ready to do chores. But, you know, all of these things, it's brilliant. It's a beautiful journey that you've come on to this point. And then coming through each of the journeys that we take as women that support other women, we will inevitably come up against a lot of really challenging situations in the journeys that we take. You know, we we talked a bit off recording before we hit record to say that my space is very much in that coaching non-medical field, yours being in that medical field and not coaching space. And yet we both come up against very similar barriers. So, What have you found? I'm really intrigued to know this from your perspective as well, because I do actually support many Asian community women and have been working with a lot of ladies who are based in London at the moment to really help um, with their cares. And I've had one lady that I've been working with for the last three months who had a very severe mental breakdown because of her menopause. Now, the only reason that her family knew it to be her menopause is because I'd actually been supporting her sister the year before. When her sister recognised what had been happening, she messaged me straight away with a bit of an SOS on a bank holiday Monday to say, can you please, please do a phone call with us so that we can understand if this is in fact menopause related and within the space of the three months we've been together she's completely transformed and we've got her the support medically as well that she's needed so there's a lot that we can do but i'm intrigued from your perspective what are the barriers that you yourself are facing within the space of support that you give well you've really highlighted the first one which is just recognizing the
1: signs imagine if she she wasn't able to recognize the sign because she didn't have the knowledge to be able to have that. So one of the biggest barriers I have is women don't have the knowledge around their body and they don't have the words for the parts of their bodies. So everything is referred to as the vagina, but actually, no, we've got the vulva, we've got the labia, we've got the perineum, we've got the posterior fichette, and then we've got the back passage, you know, the rectal area. And so everything is then hypersexualized. I work with a community for whom a lot of my patients, the women don't have English as a first language, so how do they find the lexicon to even say vulva, vagina, periods, menopause? In Punjabi and Urdu, we don't have direct translations of the word menopause. So in Punjabi, it's kapre khatamoghe. Kapre is essentially saying you're off the rag, which isn't technically true and also incredibly derogatory to women. And in uh, Urdu, it, the word for menopause is banji. Banji is basically barren translated in English. You know, that's the translation director which is an awful way of describing women. So what woman in her right mind wants to use these words to describe the next transition of her life, which she's genetically programmed to do, just like we're genetically programmed to go through puberty and then through our fertility years, we are genetically programmed to then go through our perimenopause and menopausal years. And we know perimenopause is when you have periods plus menopausal symptoms. So the knowledge around understanding these natural processes are lost. I get so many girls on my Instagram or my social media and TikTok saying, I don't even know what a normal period is. What is normal discharge? Like, should I be worried? Because I get a little bit of discharge on my panty liner or my pants every day. And I'm like, no, that's normal. And you're going to get a little bit more and it will get a bit heavier just before your cycle starts. Stress and anxiety will change the amount of discharge that you produce. Your weight changes will affect your periods. So there's, there's that aspect to it. And then the aspect of just understanding what's normal about bleeding, hang on, is changing a pad every four hours, heavy bleeding, or I'm changing a pad every half an hour. Is that heavy bleeding? Because I was told that that's normal. So those are the recurrent questions that we get constantly to the other sides, to women going, I didn't even know what perimenopause is. I have never heard the word at all, or what vaginal atrophy is. We have no word for vaginal atrophy in Punjabi or Urdu. So, The knowledge aspect is the first barrier. The next barrier is research. Women are massively under-researched. If you look at, for example, the majority of the gender-sex bias, well, it's all skewed towards men because men don't have pesky things like periods, right? (laughs) Like, they are pretty steady, whereas women are cyclical beings. And we still, in 2023, haven't actually adapted to the cyclical behavior of a woman and the next thing is, is understanding cultural practices. So female genital mutilation, incredibly barbaric act, affects 2 million women uh, across the globe. And unfortunately, uh, tragically, it's an awful practice that still happens. But we have no current guidelines in the RCOG about FGM and what to do about menopause. So what do you do about a woman with FGM who's now going through vaginal atrophy and she want, you know, she's expected to have sex with her husband? Isn't that horrific? And we currently have no guidelines into the faith, cultural nuances because all the clinical guidelines in the NHS, because we get 10 minutes as GPs, is very much skewed to a white middle-class audience. So for example, hormone replacement therapy, which is given as patches, which goes onto the skin, or gel, which goes into the skin. There is no current guidelines for Muslim women who want to practice Ramadan. And it's only through my social media that I got lots of Muslim women going... Am I putting a patch onto my skin? Is that nutrition and breaking my fast? Because you're meant to not eat and drink or have anything that's going to give you a nutritional value for, for the sunrise to sunset. When it comes to, say, diabetes or heart disease or kidney failure, which affects everybody, men and women, there are current guidelines within the NHS to make allowances for the religious practice of Ramadan. And so... For me as a woman, I think that the barriers are is just understanding the nuances. And then conversely, it's the barriers that are put onto women from the healthcare sector. Now, I will say this till the day that I die, and it's a hill that I will die on, but there is medical misogyny, I'm afraid. We have time and time again said to women, this is normal Don't worry, this has happened. And when something is defined as normal, we don't research it. And when something is defined as, again, that this pain is normal, we don't offer the adequate relief for it. So, for example, women going in for having a coil insertion, well, you have periods, so you're expected to put up with the pain. Well, that's awful behavior because no, having a coil insertion is a medical procedure we should be advocating pain relief for women as we do for anybody else we should be listening to women and taking their their symptoms seriously we know women know their bodies really well and the fantastic thing about women is if I share something with them a nugget of information they never keep it to themselves Adele they will go back to their communities their household and say oh, did you know Dr. Nagat said that I don't have to have pain on sex <laughs> <laughs> and they will share that freely. But the problem we have is that, unfortunately, when we are trained in a system which has medical misogyny, whether you agree with that or not, which is infiltrated with patriarchy and then has a Western skew to it, women from my community go, but actually I got worse treatment from the brown doctor that I saw today because she said to me, periods are normal. This is what to be expected, You know, shut up and put up. And it's women from our own community who have internalized misogyny, which perpetuate even further. And so there are so many different factors in play, which overall, arching all of that, comes to the fact that the woman in the middle, left with the symptoms, decides to put up, shut up, not talk about it, be perpetuated with taboo and stigma, and just say, this is my lot, and I'm expected to go through this, and there's a fatalistic argument and especially if you come from a faith group like my women do, I mean, I'm a practicing Muslim, is that Allah or God will fix me, not understanding there are preventative measures that we could take where you don't just have to survive, but you can thrive. And that is when you start thinking of it that way, that barriers come down and you break those barriers.
0: How powerful, right? And equally, I got shivers, I got quite triggered, there's a lot of things in there. I am deeply, you know, inside my heart of heart space. I love women. I love being a woman. I love supporting women. I am definitely an inner feminist. I love that whole connection that we have. But why, like you said, in the year 2023, are we still Dr. Nagat that was nine years old, having the same conversations You know, we can make light of these conversations, absolutely. And if we don't, we would end up becoming so severely spiraled in that negative energy. But the whole harsh reality of it is that It's only now, since you have really broken into this space, thank God for TikTok and thank God for the social platforms, that don't actually, again, bring that kind of patriarchy and that misogyny into their messaging, where you're not allowed to say the word vulva, vagina, sex, without being either disconnected from social media, having your words bleeped out in your reels. Yeah, it's like actually... TikTok allows you to be free.
1: And even before TikTok, I was doing it, but I was doing it behind closed doors, right? So I was I was talking about this day in, day out, but I was talking to one patient. And then when I came out to TikTok, the first thing I got was I got a lot of trolling. But actually, I got a lot of trolling from women from my community who were just aghast. This is a woman who wears a hijab. Her father is the imam, right? She, he's, he's a priest. She talks about going to the mosque and, uh, you know, taking a coil into the mosque and the women being absolutely horrified. Then she's talking about vulvas and vaginas. And so there was a real disconnect from, okay, this is something that we don't see. And the first thing to do is shut her down. So I would get women in my community, again, thinking that they'd have to perpetuate things, which is called izzit, which is respectful, And it's better to keep things under the veil. We should keep things under the veil because it's seen as more dainty and feminine and respectful. But actually, what that does is that it perpetuates the conversation to be kept even more underground. And so when we say to a person this is haram. So I'd get lots of messages on my social media going, sister, could you have these conversations in your clinical setting? Or sister, please don't talk about how you insert a marina coil in because this embarrasses the men in our community. Or sister, I don't want you to have this conversation about vulva or vaginal atrophy, because actually, this is something that should only be clinically practicing. But what that does is one, it perpetuates the trauma that we as women go through. Because it's not about embarrassing, like hiding someone's blushes or keeping something under the veil and it's more respectful. No, it means that the women that go through the trauma, it perpetuates it even further for them. So women shut up and put up even further. So nine-year-old Nagat and nearly 40-year-old Nagat is having the same conversation. And it's only now nearly 40-year-old Nagat looks at nine-year-old Nagat and feels really sad. And there's like a, a melancholy there because you think, ah. Oh, Actually, in the in the decades that I've been doing this, nothing has changed. Like, I'm still doing the same traumatic translation for my, my women, who I love and adore, who nurture me and look after me. And now I'm doing the same for my women as I'm an older person, and I'm yet stuck in the same pile of shit, basically. I'm sorry, but I, it is, it's true. You have to sort of be honest, because that's where we are. And that's when you just think, uh, enough, like it, it I'm done because if COVID has taught us anything, is that what happened? Women were the first ones to go back home, right? The patriarchy we thought had gone. No, women were made redundant, they were the first ones to go home. Women suddenly were expected to cook, do the housework, do their child's um, homeschooling, and everybody, regardless of your level of education, whether you are a high street banker to a mother who was always a housewife, everybody still comes to the woman in the house. You have a paper cut, regardless of the level of education of the woman in the house, people still go to women because women are nurturers. That's our very nature. And if a woman is unwell and she's coping with her menopausal symptoms or her heavy bleeding or painful periods, then the whole household is unwell. And if the whole household is unwell and you can't do activities of daily living, the economy of the household suffers. And if you replicate that, well, the economy of the country suffers. And so it makes sense to invest in your women.
0: 100%. Oh my God, yes. I am nodding away. My heart is filled with this. It's so true. It's something that I, I explain this as an analogy. So the way that my brain works, I like to see pictures. I'm very right brained with that. So when you're speaking to me, what I'm seeing is this kind of image of a tree. And the roots within that tree are the females, the mothers, the kind of female energy within the household. It's kind of like the roots need to be strong and structured. And it's kind of like that strength of an oak tree, but the flexibility of the willow so that there's that resilience within what shows up in the household. But if we're not rooted and strong and supported and connected with one another and able to have these conversations Then when you've mentioned about women being nurturers, this was a conversation I actually had yesterday and how women will show up for everyone. We will be there for every dependent we have, every patient or client or person that needs us, they will come to us. But what happens is we then deplete. And when we start to deplete, we're nobody's rock when we are crumbling. So there's this element of self-love, self-care And I would imagine that that is also another barrier within the communities that actually it's a, we have to show up for the household. We have to be present for the family unit. And when we are then not feeling our best possible self, there's a barrier that is almost created within that energy space, isn't there? That is hard to be able to say, I need to stop. I am not being mum today. I am not being a wife today. I am not being a daughter today. I am being Adele or I'm being the Gatt, and I need to self-care for me. I'd imagine that's another big one.
1: But that comes with self-confidence, having the unit around you not rely on you as the be-all and end-all and being able to share the responsibility. And that actually comes from a place of privilege as well. I'm very much aware that as a woman who comes... From a place of privilege. And I don't have thousands and thousands in my account. I mean, I'm an NHS GP. I can tell you, I know my place in life. (laughs) And I'm not like mega rich at all. I I still buy all my clothes from Tesco's. And I'm very proud of that. And I shop in Aldi and Lidl. And I have no embarrassment about that. Because it's more the fact that at the end of the day, what I want to do is to show that you've got to be able to build the units around you to have a partner who you're able to say, right? This is you, we're sharing the household chores and the responsibilities and the nurturing role. And I know, and I'm very aware that a lot of women don't have that. And a lot of women also find that, uh, especially in faith faith groups, if we're looking at perimenopause and menopausal, even you know, if you go through premature ovarian insufficiency, early menopause, we're looking at the fact that these women will find that they will turn to their faith as their resource so they do little for themselves and it's very much god will provide and there are so many women in my sort of culture in my communities if I say to them this is perimenopause and there are things that we can do it's always like well i've got to get my children their arranged marriage i'm going to look after my parents with their dementia i'm going to give up my job because i'm doing too much and my family come first which means that the woman is financially now crippled by it I've also got to make sure that my grandchildren are looked after because my children need to go to work and I'm the the gr the, the carer as well. And I see it in my household. I I mean my mother, I would say, is really the matriarch of our family. And I try and not burden her as much, but every now and then she is the sole provider of childcare for me because she lives three doors away. But it comes back to the fact that we find The skill to say yes very quickly as women, but the skill that it's taken me to say no and form boundaries, healthy boundaries, and not feel guilt is still a learning process that I haven't acquired Oh gosh, you're
0: not the only one. Shame, guilt, all the things. Yeah, it, it definitely comes through, especially when we need a moment to just say, I need to just be alone, or I need to go and have a walk, or I do a lot of grounding, so bare feet outside. But it comes back into that word privilege. It really does. And, you know, as, as a white woman growing up in the UK from birth, my husband's Irish and he was growing up in the Irish Troubles. He's just a few years older than me. And listening to his stories, you know, I, I kind of break down in tears a lot of the time thinking, wow, I was in this massive cotton wool bubble the majority of my life. Now, we never grew up with any money. We were we were really poverty driven as a as a family but humbling to the fact that actually I never went through anything he went through I certainly never went through what you've been through and yet we come together in this space where every single female or woman born with female reproductive organs will journey through menopause to some degree some worse than others some will feel absolutely fine coming through And you probably hear this more than I do, where women all go, oh, yeah, I'm past that now. I've got through there. I'm at the other side. And it's that whole thing of, well, actually, we don't ever get through it. We don't ever get to another side of it, because then we've got the heightened risk of things like cardiovascular or heart disease. We've got what we referred to at the start with, you know, bone and muscle health with osteopenia or osteoporosis. And I'm 39. I'll be 40 next month. It's a big year for both of us. I um, got diagnosed with osteopenia in my spine just last month. So this, for me, was a big eye-opener. It was a shock. It was a real big shock because there's no reason lifestyle-wise, I'm not ticking any of the the risk factors in those risk lifestyle boxes, but um, certainly having probably entered in perimenopause in my early 30s, not having it confirmed until I was 36, starting HRT at 37 has obviously had an impact. So there are a lot of things that as we start to build the conversation and you do amazing things on the platforms that you're on with your own shows.
1: Let's unpick even some of that because Adele, what you've just said is that that's going to resonate with so many of your listeners who are going to say, well, I'm in that similar boat. But imagine... Firstly, you don't have the lexicon to even describe that you're in early, you know, menopause or premature menopause. And then, secondly, you're dealing with your own traumas. And I think that regardless of your place in life and uh, the privileges or not so many privileges, because everybody's boat's different, right? We've all got different sized boats. And some have got like holes in them and some have got yachts. And, and that's just going to be the way that life is. But what we can all relate on as, as women and as healthcare professionals and as just humans is that we can be allies for each other. So the whole role of allyship, I think, is so important. And we don't put highlight that enough because what you have just shared there is that you're going to be an ally to, say, a South Asian woman who's listening to the podcast and sitting on the fence about starting HRT because actually she hasn't got the diagnosis on time, but she's left it 10 years and now she probably does have early menopause. So this is where I think that it's so significant to constantly share. We are trained always to go, no, 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 keep everything under the veil. It's much better if you do it that way. Don't share your dirty laundry. And that bit of nugget of information to me has just felt you've literally formed a group of women and informed them. And then they will take that nugget of information. Do you know what, Adele? She's 39 and she went on HRT and she's been diagnosed with osteoporosis. Do, do you see what I mean? That awareness and that understanding just means that others can literally light their candle of knowledge because you've shared something. That is the first bit of breaking down barriers.
0: Yeah. And, you know, thank you for that as well. And and for me, I don't hide anything. I don't get embarrassed. I share everything. A lot of my early symptoms of perimenopause were vaginal related, smells, discharge, Bleeding during and after sex, it was very painful. It wasn't enjoyable. I actually couldn't climax, so I lost my ability to have an orgasm. And that, again, wasn't something that you're going to make a GP appointment and kind of sit there and go, right, there's this whole list of things that are majorly embarrassing that I need you to fix for me. It was back to our earlier conversation where when we get to know our own bodies, we're then fully aware of what feels right and what doesn't feel right. But it took me years, years of constantly running blood works, having scans, internals, checks. At one point, I was told it was a high possibility that I had cervical cancer. So there was lots of things that were going on. And the penny dropped for me with the knowledge that I had after I had my Marina Coil removed for internal biopsies and an internal check. And once they had replaced the Marina coil for me, it was around about its third year of insertion. It was then removed and replaced. Within 24 hours of that coil being replaced, a whole handful of my symptoms disappeared. And immediately I went, a penny dropped. And I said to my husband, I've been telling them this is hormonal. My body's needed progesterone. So that to me was a huge big drive forward of saying, I know what feels right and what doesn't. So you're so right. It's that whole shading, never being embarrassed because we don't get embarrassed about talking about our hand. So we shouldn't get embarrassed about talking about the vulva or vagina.
1: And every woman has it, every, you know, and everyone comes out with one. <laughs> so it's just like letters of sunroof
0: delivery well technically yeah (laughs) yeah
1: exactly but the majority of people will come from someone who has one absolutely
0: (laughs) absolutely oh this has been an absolute honor to speak with you thank you for coming here for sharing your words of wisdom your insight you're such a joy and a blessing on this planet right now for women and your book This is out on the 3rd of August, if I'm not mistaken, is available now to pre-order. I love it. So good. So The Knowledge, Your Guide to Female Health from Menstruation to the Menopause by Dr. Nagat Arif is out on the 3rd of August. I will pop a link in the show notes for everyone to go ahead and get that pre-ordered. This is definitely the book of the year that you are going to need to read from an insight from a very intelligent and inspirational woman. Thank you so much for everything you do. This has been a complete honour and hopefully we will be able to do something again together soon.
1: I hope so. And thank you for sharing my book because this has been... I've been a doctor for 16 years, so this is 15 years of my work. But it literally, there's only three chapters, and it's my clinical work as a women's health GP um, split into puberty years, uh, fertility years, and then menopause. But real tools to take back to your NHS doctor or any healthcare provider and say, I think I have this. So it's getting that knowledge. And um, it's a book that is designed in a way that has a sprinkling of all my ethnic minority community women. So the barriers that we talked about earlier, I tackle those and what you can do in order to make sure that they're not barriers anymore. So I've got women of colour in my book, what lichen sclerosis looks like on black skin, because there are no pictures currently in the NHS that as well what to do about ramadan and fasting and also hrt so all of those nuggets of information that i've collected as a clinician and it's it can literally go on any coffee table without embarrassment because it's not going to embarrass the men but that's the most important thing men are so vital to all these conversations so there's information about dads single dads widow dads how to talk to women in your family about women's health things as well as trans health lgbtq plus communities are planning to have children what advice is out there for them and finally this is literally a book that the daughter can read the mother can read and the grandmother so three generations can share the book amongst them congratulations
0: (laughs) i honestly cannot wait till mine arrives i have that on pre-order and i'm excited to read it. So thank you so much. Before we finish up our episode today, could I ask you to give one top tip piece of information to our listener today that they can take away? And it might be something that you think they need to know for maybe heading to their GP appointment or something they need to know for understanding what the next steps for them might be
1: my golden rule always and consistently has been please if you do anything for your gp or nurse or healthcare practitioner keep a symptom diary track your symptoms write them down so that when you go into the doctor that you are fully prepared and i want to know everything nothing is embarrassing i want to know about the fact that you can't climax i want to know about the fact that you might have had a uti after having sex I want to know about the fact that you might have had blood in your poo, all of those things, you know, the fact that there's discharge from your nipple. Keep a track of your symptoms, because we come as jigsaw puzzles when we come with symptoms. And to get the diagnosis, the GP's role is to put those jigsaw puzzle pieces together and go, okay, I think this is the most probable diagnosis. And my next tip, I know you said one, but my next tip is, is always take a loved one if you need to. If you are embarrassed or worried about things about your body and to talk about it, please never be uh, frightened to take a loved one or a friend or someone who can be your advocate because I know that it sometimes is hard to be an advocate for yourself because you feel, talking to a doctor, I don't know much about my body, but you honestly do. You know your body better than anyone ever will.
0: It's exactly what I say. You know it better than anyone ever will, including the most attuned medical professionals out there it's your body so we have that duty of care to ourselves to know it dr negat thank you so much for being present for your life currency today your vibrancy and your high vibe energy it's been an absolute joy thank you
1: thank you so much for having me
0: I truly hope this episode has sparked something vibrant inside of you. I ask only one thing to help keep these episodes coming. Please subscribe and share with another in your life. That's how we reach more women worldwide and we help them step into their power. Because together, we are working to remove any of the stigma and taboo that surrounds menopause. This does not need to be a daunting, a scary, a taboo time in anyone's life. So together, let's make menopause mainstream.